Sons and daughters of noble birth, Dharma masters, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Supreme Assembly, welcome to the Buddhaverse podcast. Over the years, I've amassed quite a collection of facts uh, that would be totally useless facts were I not to share them with someone. And today's topic is so crucial, not just to the Buddhist world, but every living thing on this planet. In today's episode, we're going to talk about someone near and dear to my heart. Someone that has made my life better, although he doesn't know it. Or does he? I'm talking about His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I think it's super important for people to have the full story, or at least some knowledge about this jewel of a human, and what he is and what he does, because if you're sleeping on the Dalai Lama, you're just doing it wrong, man. So, let's get into it. What we need is a Buddhaverse emoji. In other words, we need Nirvana emoji. It's called Enlightenment. On June 20th, 2016, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to my hometown of Sacramento to speak to the California State Legislature. My reverend that I grew up with learning the Dharma from at the Sacramento Betsuin, Reverend Bob Oshta, gave the following opening words. Thank you, Speaker Rendon, and the honored members of the California State Assembly for this invitation. It is a very special honor to join with you again this morning, most especially to Welcome to the State Capitol, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. If there is an advocate for world peace and harmony, if there is one whose presence alone embodies kindness, forgiveness, and gratitude, that ambassador of goodness has long been His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His Holiness has been an unhindered beacon of hope for all humanity to live with compassion. Please join me in a moment of meditative reflection. When horrific acts of violence occur, my heart has wondered, is there really hope for humanity? The Dalai Lama is my living reminder that creating a better world begins with me. Healing the wounds of hate begins with me. Hope for humanity begins with my patience and kindness. Today, let us all renew our belief in the essential goodness of our shared humanity. Let us today renew our hope for a better world. Let us look within and know that the end of hate and the end of rage and the beginning of peace begins with each of us. It begins with my peace of mind, my patience, and kindness. Creating a better future begins with all of us. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa 
Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddham Sarananga Chami Dhamman Sarananga Chami Sangyam Sarananga Chami Namandao in today's episode, I want to rant about this being, the great 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, because I am in awe of this person, uh, this Pandita, this Bodhisattva, this hero. The fact that he's walking around or sitting somewhere on planet Earth right now makes life so much stranger, uh, so much more mystical and exciting. I don't know. It's difficult to explain the effect that this person has on you when you're devoted to the path of Dharma. You feel like it makes it more real. If To me, it makes it feel like it's more real. It hits close to home when you see enlightenment in action. I think I'm perceiving that it's very much the case that we have a living Buddha here amongst us. In this age when there are so few leaders and people to look up to, we have a whopper by the name of Tenzin Gyatso. Only one other Dalai Lama is called the Great Dalai Lama, and that's the fifth due to his consolidation of power in Tibet. And this current iteration is called the Great Fourteenth because he held together the government, the Dharma, the culture, and the heart and soul of the Tibetan people during probably the most difficult period in Tibetan history, the ethnocide of Tibetan culture, the utter devastation of their beautiful homeland, taking on an enormous responsibility at such a young age while being the world's foremost example of forbearance and nonviolence in the face of abject horror and tragedy. He is the leader of all world leaders. He's the great teacher of all teachers. His name is literally synonymous with being a good person. Post-World War II and into this century, he has been the steady pulse of conscience, the ocean-like source of wisdom, the backbone of human civilization that asks for no credit, but surely is the underlying foundation of stability and responsibility in the, po- in the planetary subconscious with his superhuman dedication to ethics, compassion, and education. Whether you know who he is and what he teaches, I would be surprised if there was a single person on planet Earth that didn't know the name Dalai Lama. Personally, I get a deep feeling when I think about this man, what he's done, and I often marvel at the fact that he's somewhere on Earth right now, just carrying out his miraculous activity, What is he doing? Uh, What's it like to be the Dalai Lama? Uh, What's it like to have his mind? Uh, So let's break it down, what this man is and what it means to be on earth at the same time as Tenzin Gyatso, the great 14th Dalai Lama. In every sutra it says, even if I were to expound about the qualities of the Buddha without break for as many eons as sands in the rivers Ganges, I still would not come close to even a fraction of the Buddha's virtues. And the Dalai Lama is actually literally a person alive right now that this excerpt can be applied to. So me speaking for an hour is a shallow attempt to summarize his activities and qualities, but attempt I shall. If you want the gold standard of the life and personality of the Dalai Lama, you have to get the graphic novel Man of Peace with incredibly beautiful artwork and elaborate illustrations in comic book style that spans from the time of the 13th Dalai Lama to the present day and it's absolutely breathtaking and I learned so much from it and I really got a great sense of who the Dalai Lama is and what he means to the world so I really suggest you pick that up 
if you have the predilection. The Dalai Lama has co-authored over 110 books, which to me doesn't even seem real, but they're all online at DalaiLama.com if you don't believe me. So again, if you want more in-depth knowledge, uh, a deeper perspective about Tibetan Buddhism and His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I suggest you grab any one of those. Okay. So, to understand the Dalai Lama completely, you have to have some working knowledge of Tibet and Mahayana Buddhism in general. So, if you're completely new to this whole thing, you may want to do some Googling. But I mostly just want to demonstrate how gnarly of a person the Dalai Lama is, so as to uh, pacify any misgivings about a foreign-sounding institution of systematic reincarnation, and to illustrate the kind of heart and attitude and life that this being has. Tibetan history is tens of thousands of years old, as with most ancient Asian civilizations, but Buddhism in Tibet began in the 7th century, when it was imported from Nepal, India, and China. And being the only spiritual preference in Tibet, besides the native Bun tradition of shamanism, with the help of great scholars and Mahasiddhas like Padmasambhava, Atisha, Shantarakshita, Naropa, and their homegrown heroes as well, like Melarepa, Mashigrobladron, Yeshit Sogyal, uh, and King Tritson Detson, Buddhism gradually dominated the cultural landscape of t the Tibetan plateau and did so until the 1950s when China invaded. The teachings of the Buddha are so deeply ingrained in the culture of the Tibetan people that it's nearly inseparable from the Tibetan identity. Fast forward to the 14th century and an extremely extraordinary monastic reformer, scholar, and practitioner by the name of Jade Tsongkhapa gained nationwide renown in Tibet for his mastery of logic and high level of realization. I could do a whole episode on Lama Tsongkhapa, Jade Rinpoche, which I probably will, but if you want to learn more about this being, go to the Bob Thurman podcast and he expounds extensively on him. And Tubten Jinpa just finished a new biography on him that is supposed to be quite good. Lama Tsongkhapa reinvigorated the Katampa tradition of Jowa Atisha, which means the older brother Atisha, which was a movement towards rehabilitation of the Vinaya and establishment of the monastic Sangha in rigorous study and observance of precepts, a movement that spread to all the other orders of Nyingma Sakya and Kagyu. Uh, Tsongkhapa was such a prolific figure at the time, and according to accounts, had such high realizations and cognitive abilities that one of his main disciples, Gindandrupa, the first Dalai Lama, would in his later incarnations become the king of Tibet, and considered protector of all Tibetan people. So I'm now going to quickly run through 600 years of Tibetan history in a few minutes, so keep in mind that I'm glossing over a lot of details. The Galupa Order became the largest and most powerful monastic institution in Tibet, with some pushback from other orders, but also a lot of support from them as well, uh, receiving recognition and patronage from the Mongolian and Chinese emperors. But at the time, and to this day, the Dalai Lama institution is universally revered, and the Dalai Lama is undoubtedly and undisputedly the representative of Tibetan Buddhism throughout the world. The life story of every Dalai Lama can be found in the Treasury of, Live, Treasury of Lives website. The link is in the resources page of buddhaversepodcast.com. It's super fascinating to read about how this institution came into existence and to get an insider's look on how the reincarnation system works to see how extensive and 
crazy rigorous the education and training of a great Buddhist master is. And Tibet has been known to turn out these great masters by the thousands. And to get a vision of the unique and now extinct majesty of an entirely Buddhist empire that put Dharma in the very center of its activities and at the top of its priorities. Robert Thurman's book, Inner Revolution, gives a brilliant accounting of how Tibet opened the door for millennial consciousness to take root. Pretty sure he coined that term. To quote him on that, Millennial consciousness developed when a person breaks through the shell of habitual self-centeredness, sees through the falsely created view of the absoluteness of the ordinary world, and realizes truth in an instant. A healthy person in the melting aspect of the moment of full orgasm loses him or herself completely and has an instance of apocalypse before the structures and boundaries of inadequacy return with all of their force. People absorbed in activity, runners racing, musicians performing, artists creating, mothers giving milk, all of them have a taste of millennial consciousness, a momentary blissful freedom from dissatisfaction, self-concern, and pain. This consciousness in the Enlightenment movement is called millennial when the vision of this freedom expands so greatly that it aims to create a nationwide and ultimately worldwide society of perfect happiness based on enlightenment. It is apocalyptic in the sense of being instantaneously revelatory and ultimately decisive. God, that is some good reading right there, Bob. You genius. He explains this concept much more extensively in the book, but yes, Tibet fully opened up to the Dharma and made bodhicitta, or the spirit or soul of enlightenment, the nationwide mantra, and is arguably the only successful, fully integrated Buddhist society that ever existed, where the people, the monastic institutions, and the ruling class were all in agreement about what trajectory the nation and culture should take, eventually doing away with the traditional monarchy system and making the Sangha the head of state which had never been done and has never been done since. This is very much due to the sheer magnificence of the lineage of the Dalai Lamas and the allowance of the vision of the Mahayana to be carried out to its highest degree possible. Much the same way Marines carry out their duty of being an unstoppable killing force with extreme precision, sincerity, and soberness, the Tibetans committed to spreading wisdom and compassion as widely and deeply as possible with determined resoluteness. Tsongkhapa passed away 600 years ago, but his legacy, which is the worldwide fame of his disciple the Dalai Lama, is very much alive and active in the world. The humility and graciousness that he showed to China and the Chinese people after the killing of a million of his people, leveling of every temple, rape of the landscape, and torturing of millions more, was a shock to the system of a world population so used to the reactionary and violent responses of every world leader that is pushed upon by foreign threat. Even putting the situation in the light of thanking the Chinese government for their actions because it allowed Tibetan Buddhism to spread around the world is a blaring and confounding declaration from this world leader that he will live in truth of the inseparability of humanity and with a commitment to nonviolence despite the way his people were treated that is truly superhuman in nature. And I think he did this not only because he had the minds and souls of his own people at heart in this decision, but for the sake of the soul of all of humanity. We as adults will always tell our children, violence only begets more violence, to use our words, that hatred can only be compatible with love, uh, ignorance with intelligence. But something happens when it comes to geopolitics or our own national and personal agendas 
that we throw these obvious ethical imperatives out the window and behave like lunatics. 1.3 million Iraqis dead for 3,000 Americans in 9-11 was obviously disproportionate. The anger that wells up when we are slighted in the least uh, for each person is undeniable. We have an unquenchable bloodthirst on this planet where we throw human bodies into the meat grinder of war in a ceaseless onslaught, and this has to stop if humanity is to survive another hundred years. And what example do we have in our daily lives of heroes that take the high road? Where else, aside from Martin Luther King and Gandhi in our modern world, have we seen this kind of peaceful revolution? This unflinching commitment to maintaining composure with a messianic and worldwide consideration of the effects of the actions one takes. I digress. The third Dalai Lama, Sonam Gyatso, was named Dalai Lama, meaning Ocean of Wisdom, by the Mongolian Emperor Alan Khan, Alan Khan who Sonam Gyatso named Brahma, or King of Religion. In 1642, the Mongolian warlord Gushri Khan, who was a descendant of Genghis Khan's brother and occupied large regions of Tibet, asked the fifth Dalai Lama to be the religious and political leader of Tibet. The sixth Dalai Lama oversaw the completion of the Potala Palace in Lhasa, which became the capital, and the seventh Dalai Lama, Kelsang Gyatso, after some turbulent years of deadly politics with the help of the Qing Emperor, was re-established as the leader of Tibet after a Mongol leader tried to name his own son as Dalai Lama, and it has remained this way until the present day, although the 14th Dalai Lama has relinquished power of the Tibetan government in exile to a parliamentary system. The 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 7th, and 8th Dalai Lamas were renowned for their scholarly aptitude and wonderful writings, serving as abbots of the main Gelug monasteries while building many others, preserving the Nalanda system of education that had been painstakingly imported from India, while the 4th, 6th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th Dalai Lamas died at relatively young ages. I wish I could share some of the teachings and writings and activities of these great, great masters, but I have to stay on task. The activities of the Dalai Lamas have been fortified by the Penchen Lamas, who stem from Kedrabje, one of Zonkapa's other main disciples. This system of successive reincarnation discipleship is exquisitely brilliant and is so common in the Tibetan tradition because there is usually an age discrepancy between disciple and master. So when the master passes, the disciple takes on the responsibility of finding and then serving as master to the tulku, or reincarnated master. And then when they die, the master returns the service. And it has gone on this way in every school of Tibetan Buddhism for a long, long time which in our modern world is inconceivable, not because we're incapable of understanding, but because we're so rigid in our thinking, and we have no way to wrap our heads around reincarnation, let alone uh, recognizing a young child as a great Buddhist master, but in a land of thousands of yogis and realized masters with psychic abilities who can read minds and know the future, it was a fairly commonplace occurrence. The 13th Dalai Lama, Tupten Gyatso, was born to a peasant couple and recognized at age one and enthroned at age three in 1977. In 1895, he took full monastic ordination and took over full political and religious duties. And in 1904, Tibet suffered an invasion from England. And then in 1909, an invasion from the Qing Emperor, the first foreign invasion since the Mongol invasion of 1240. But as the situation in Beijing had deteriorated due to a rejection of the Manchu government, 
1911, the 13th Dalai Lama's forces successfully expelled the Chinese occupiers, and he established himself as the sole leader of Tibet. In 1913, he made a public five-pointed statement establishing Tibetan independence. The 13th introduced Tibetan currency, a postal service, and began opening up Tibet to outside influence by sending students to study in England. In 1914, he established the Tibetan army, and in 1917, he created the Mense Kong, the Institute of Tibetan Medicine and Astrology. He created a Tibetan police force, a taxation system, a hydroelectric-generated factory, a power grid in Lhasa, secular schools and English schools, in a grand effort to modernize Tibet in anticipation of the inevitable technological incursion by the Western world. The 13th Dalai Lama also received teachings and initiations from all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and was a great proponent of the Rime movement, having close relationships with the greatest scholars of the time, such as Sakya Pandita, Kinsei Chokidodro, and Lerub Lingpa. Tupton Gyatso established relationships with the Japanese government, the American ambassador to China, and shaky communications with Britain and Russia that resulted in a policy of neutrality from the superpowers. Although the 13th demonstrated great foresight in implementing these reforms, it was too little too late, and many of his reforms didn't take due to cultural resistance from religious authorities and structural inadequacies economically and administratively. He predicted his own death a few years before the event, and in a chilling letter he prophetically outlined the fate of Tibet that later unfolded exactly as written. I'm going to read that now. In the future, this system will be certainly deceived either from within or from outside the land that cherish the joint spiritual and temporal system. If in such an event we fail to defend our land, the holy lamas, including the triumphant father and son, the Dalai Lama and Pension Lama, will be eliminated without a trace of their names remaining, and of the monasteries along with their endowments for religious services will be seized. Moreover, our political system, originated by the three ancient kings, will be reduced to empty name. My officials, deprived of their patrimony and property, will be subjugated as slaves for the enemies. And my people, subjected to fear and miseries, will be unable to endure day or night. Such an era will certainly come. Ominous signs foretold his coming passing, such as an earthquake and destruction of a monastery he just visited. The sound of a crying woman was heard throughout the Potala, which was heard at the time of the death of the seventh, and an owl hooted on the roof of the Nechung Monastery for two days. Uh, apparently this is not a good sign. On the 13th of October, 1933, the 13th Dalai Lama passed away sitting up in meditation posture. On a dark side note, this is the same year that Hitler rose to power and executed his opposition in the Nazi party, and the same month that Hitler withdrew from the Geneva Disarmament Conference. In my own superstitious mind and belief that the Dalai Lama is in fact the literal Buddha of compassion of Alokite, it is my belief that demons come out to play when the Dalai Lamas leave our temporal plane. So please, please, your holiness, stay around a little bit longer. Anywho, this is where our story gets quite interesting. The 13th had just passed, and Tibet is in a tense moment where it has been left leaderless with an unstoppable and potentially hostile government of China beginning to emerge, and Europe is becoming increasingly unstable as well. It's up to the monks of the Galukpa order to find the new Dalai Lama. Now, there's a verifiable and testable reality to what the Tibetans call Tukdam, or aware death stasis, 
And I'll post a link to some fascinating news reports on Tibetan lamas in the West that have remained with their body undecaying and limp. While it is said that the lama, lucid and aware in the bardo, or in-between-death-and-rebirth state, looks for a suitable womb in which to take rebirth. An explanation of this will have to be a whole episode, so we will just move on. There were many signs surrounding the circumstances of the 13th's passing to indicate the location of the reincarnation. I think some clarification on the differences between reincarnation, rebirth, and emanation would be helpful right now. So, the 13th to the 14th would be an example of reincarnation. A lot of people say, do you believe in reincarnation? But what they really mean is rebirth. Reincarnation would be a person coming back as the same person. So, if I died and then I intentionally entered a womb of a lady, let's say my cousin, and then later indicating when I can speak that my name was Will and you were my cousin and I lived here and the information is verifiable... I would be an incarnation of my previous identity. The Tibetan Buddhists have mastered the art of remaining lucid and cognizant during the dying process, and thus have given rise to the world's only system of reincarnation, through which they govern their religious systems. My Lama, for example, are tokus, or manifestations, or reincarnations. But for better or worse, this is the way it has ended up, and it is really quite fascinating if it is true, which I believe it is, And it's very beneficial to the preservation of the Dharma. If a great master can be recognized and then continue on with their specialized training, life after life, picking up where they left off, going further and further on the path. And there are also great masters who are not reincarnations, just the same. So I don't think there's a bias in favor of the tokus. But I feel it's more, if your master was born somewhere, it would be nice to know where. Rebirth is what the rest of us schmoes do which is when we die, driven by karma and without intention, finding ourselves in some womb or egg, be it human or other, with no memory of how we got there. This is rebirth, and this is what the Buddhists call cyclical existence, and is the type of birth that the whole path is geared towards overcoming. Thus, in the Theravada, they say to put an end to cyclical existence, which doesn't mean no longer existing, but means existing with intention and not driven solely uh, by suffering, grasping, selfishness, and unawareness. Now, an emanation is quite unique. This refers to someone who has achieved Buddhahood and now comes back to this plane as a nirmanakaya, or emanation body, sometimes called a transformation or retribution body. And for beginners, this would require a whole explanation that will be on a whole another hour-long episode But let's just leave it at uh, a physical manifestation of an already enlightened being, as opposed to a spiritual or mental manifestation. The Dalai Lama is considered as an emanation body of the 10th stage Bodhisattva Avalokite Ishvara, uh, or Lord who watches over the world. Again, the Bodhisattva and the 10 stages are a whole other episode. Let's just say he is an extremely important Buddha to every form of Buddhism on earth, and who even is mentioned in the Theravada Pali Canon. So, this figure Avalokiteshvara is, you know, one of the most important figures in Buddhism. Sorry for the huge aside. First, when the 13th died sitting up, his head turned to one side, indicating the cardinal direction that he would take rebirth in. And also, on the northeast corner of the room, a pillar grew a strange mold in the shape of a Sanskrit syllable, ah, also an indication of the direction. 
When the monks went outside to look towards the northeast, a flock of birds was seen heading in that direction. And from Lhasa, a large cloud formation in the northeast, in the shape of the syllable Ah, was seen by many. His monks also consulted the state oracle, who then confirmed that the child had been born in the northeast. The Reting Rinpoche, who was appointed regent, was to consult a holy lake called Lamo Latso, where he indeed received a vision of a temple and a house with a turquoise roof and recognized the temple as being in the Amdo province. Three years passed, and a search party was sent out to the town of Toxter. The monk in charge changed robes with a lower-level monk as a disguise, and they found the house with a turquoise roof, the home of Chokyong and Deki Tsering. This family already had their eldest son recognized as a Toku, and they had just had their fourth child, a son born a few years before, Lamo Tundup. This child was very unique, let's say, as he would always demand to sit at the head of the table, and sometimes would pack a bag and tell the family, I'm leaving now, I have to go to the capital. When the search party arrived at the home, they behaved as though they were just passing through, and when the boy saw the head monk that was wearing a mala around his neck, the kid grabbed the mala and said, this is mine. It was, in fact, his mala. The child was able to name the monks personally upon seeing them, even though they were wearing different robes. The monks told the family that he may be a toku, and returned later to do an official investigation. The recognition for the Dalai Lama, I feel, is more involved than most. I've heard about a lot of recognitions, and I've never heard of the item test being done on another Lama. I should ask my Rinpoche about that. I hope your viewers have seen the episode of King of the Hill where Bobby is the Tulku. Uh, it is both hilarious and informative, and it's probably on YouTube. Uh, continuing on. The three sacred items belonging to the 13th were placed in front of the boy amongst other items that were not his, and the boy aced the test selecting all of the items correctly. This to me is a pretty scientific blinded experiment on the probability of the child getting all the items correct considering that the child has, let's say, a 10% chance of getting it right the first time, and then to get it right a second time and a third time. I wish I knew some statistical math thing, but uh, if I believe if the child was guessing to get it right three times in a row, that would be a pretty low probability. Maybe listeners that actually paid attention in math would know how to measure that probability. Would it still be a 10% chance every time? I don't know. So anyway, the child was confirmed by the signs, the visions, and the tests, and I'm sure some sort of extrasensory, dare I say, telepathic intuition from the head monks in charge. I really can't wait to get into parapsychology publications over the last 40 years from Princeton, Duke, University of Virginia, amongst so many others, and all of their findings in the fields of remote viewing and precognition and the whole gamut of new discoveries to be made in the mind sciences. Uh, science is about to have a big time change. As soon as we stop worrying about Mars and dark matter, we're going to start getting to the good stuff which is mind and consciousness science. Not brain science, but mind science. Ooh, I get so overly excited thinking about parapsychology. His identity was kept secret for fear of interference, and even so, his travel to Lhasa was held up for a bit by a Chinese warlord. But when the ransom was paid, a huge caravan of government officials and monastics made the journey with the boy and his brother in a palanquin, and upon arriving to the capital, the family found out that their son was in fact the Dalai Lama.
Can you imagine going from being a horse farmer in the boonies to your son being king of Tibet in a matter of days? That must have been pretty cool. He was officially enthroned in 1940 and received his novice vows in the name Jampel Nawan Lamsang Yeshe Tenzin Gyatso and began his formal education on Buddhist philosophy and logic called Pramana, Sutra, or the canonical teachings of Buddha, the Prajna Paramita, or perfection of wisdom, the Madhyamaka, or middle way philosophy, Abhidharma, or compendium of phenomenology, Vinaya, the rule of the monastic order, grammar, Sanskrit, amongst many other subjects like poetry, drama, astrology, composition, and synonyms, while also studying about the history of Tibet, the previous Dalai Lamas, the world, Buddha, the Devas, and other religions. We in the West, we like to fancy ourselves as educated, but if you go through the curriculum of a Buddhist scholar's higher education, you will feel like an ignoramus. You have to be a genius to even approach it. It's so cute when His Holiness talks to scientists because he likes to act like they are totally blowing his mind. Because he appears to be a silly old religious fanatic that likes to pull people's noses and laugh a lot. But this guy knows more about reality than probably anyone on earth. And I'm being quite literal about that. From being the foremost expert on human psychology and mind training, to global politics, to quantum physics, to philosophy of science, the mind, religion, ritual, ontology, logic, medicine not to mention a complete understanding of the vast system of Buddhist thought, as well as lifelong meditational experience paired with the deepest understanding of compassion and human suffering, I doubt any single human being has had a more broad and rigorous education and experienced more interfaith religious and scientific symposiums or conferences, or has interacted with more people on the planet, period. I would say in the West, the only comparable people would be Alan Wallace and Noam Chomsky, who are two of my absolute heroes, but I think Alan's got Noam beat on, you know, meditational, cultural, and scientific literacy, but Noam is second to none in political theory and dynamics, economic and imperial history, and just an overall grip on the way private and public power structures maintain their grips on the world. But the Dalai Lama, he's a... He's, he's the king. He's the one. So the Dalai Lama's education continued uninterrupted until he was 15, at which point the People's Liberation Army of China began to encroach on Tibetan borders, and he was then given complete responsibility over the fate of six million Tibetans. Now, you have to consider that these people were either crazy to give a kid control of a country at 15 at a time when they were facing such danger, or they were very, very sure that this was in fact their Bodhisattva king. And based on what I've seen of Tibetan culture and their patterns of behavior from Western eyes, they may not be perfect, but these people are far from crazy. The Dalai Lama appointed two experienced administrators as lay and monastic prime ministers to help him. So it's not like he was by himself calling all the shots. He tried everything in his power to prevent a full-scale invasion by the Chinese, including sending a failed delegation to Beijing to ask them to stop, which didn't work, reaching out to the U.S., India, and Britain to no avail, meeting with Chairman Mao in Beijing uh, himself with the Panchen Lama to talk about Tibetan welfare. And if you've seen Seven Years in Tibet, you'll know that this was the creepiest of meetings. Apparently that movie was pretty accurate. 
And by 1958, the Chinese Red Army was moving closer and closer to Lhasa, laying waste to Tibetan communities. I don't want to get into the gruesome details of this campaign. There are a lot of sources if you want to hear horror stories comparable to Auschwitz and the rape of Nanking and the Rwandan genocide that you can read. Uh, you can read Dragon in the Land of Snows, Tears of Blood, A Cry for Tibet, Meltdown in Tibet, and Heinrich Herrer's Return to Tibet if you want to get, you know, a more in-depth view of you know, the devastation. His Holiness had to continue his studies of the Dharma throughout all of this, as he was expected to complete his Geshe degree, which is essentially the Ivy League PhD program of the Gelupas. Except here you had to prove through debate that he was a master of reasoning and philosophy, and not only that he understands the true meaning of emptiness and enlightenment, but that he can defend that position against dialectic opposition through debate. So just imagine the teachers of the school grilling you in front of several thousand people just for you to get your degree. Uh, this is an art that I feel has been completely lost to our modern world, but was once one of the highlights of the ancient Indian culture and society. In the highly sophisticated marketplace of ideas from which the ancient Indian religions were birthed, where intellectuals put their positions to the test and the loser of the debate would become the student of the winner in the hopes of sincerely drilling down to the truth of reality. And I think it's a far cry from the sheepish, ego-fueled pop intellectualism that seems to serve a purely economic function out of which we get our reductionist and ultimately nihilistic wet blanket of a worldview. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition is perhaps the only instance where this art of dialectic epistemology from ancient India has survived, and it is arguable that there is no greater master of Buddhist and Indian logic than His Holiness. He has mastered the arguments of Nagarjuna, Aryadeva, Asanga Vasubandhu, Dharmakirti, Dignaga, Chandrakirti, Ratnakirti, Shantarakshita, Tsongkhapa, and many other master logicians in a body of writing that is so thorough and so complex, it makes Western philosophy look pathetic. It's the evidence left behind of what happens when hypergenius realized beings in a peaceful country have nothing better to do for a lifetime than think about what we know and how we know it. The mechanisms of consciousness and what happens when you take the most advanced meditation techniques for calmness and concentration and then mix them with the penetrating insight of relativity for thousands of years. His tutors Trijang Dorjichong and Ling Rinpoche, whom George Lucas based Yoda upon, taught the Dalai Lama well like the last Jedi that he is, not only becoming a master of the Galupa curriculum, but as a Rime master, the Dalai Lama received and gives transmissions on all the major lineages and teachings of the other three schools of Tibetan Buddhism and gives teachings all year round on all aspects of Buddhism. If you want to understand the depths of the Dalai Lama's knowledge, just go to his YouTube channel and you will find over 700 videos of him, of him giving teachings. And every day there are more videos, and he's 84, and his teaching schedule has been greatly reduced for his health. So imagine Tenzin Gyatso in his prime, what it must have been like. A young Tenzin Gyatso giving a teaching must have been like a tigress on a mountain roaring the thunderclap of valid cognition. I just pray that I can live long enough to see the 15th in his prime. I think that would be pretty awesome. 
And I think that's the quality that really hits home with me when I hear about the saints or Buddhist masters is their bizarre encyclopedic erudition on such specific and specialized material and seemingly endless retention of texts and quotes and dates and names. Then when you pick one of these people to study, like a Master Hua or Longchenpa, and then you look at their body of work and what they produced, it spins your head on how this person wrote all of this. He received his Geshe degree in 1959 during the Monlam festival, uh, which the Dalai Lama called one of the highlights of his life. But in that same year, the Chinese forces were so close to Lhasa that he had to escape to India in the night on foot. Prime Minister Nehru agreed to give Tenzin Gyatso and the Tibetan people asylum in India, and His Holiness began to administer the Tibetan government in exile, doing everything in his power to resettle and create infrastructure for the hundreds of thousands of Tibetan refugees who needed home, food, medicine, work, and education in a new strange land. The resettlement was extremely difficult for the Tibetans. It was hot. They were extremely poor. Many of them got sick. I'm not sure if there was much discrimination and contempt for them from the Indians, but India was already such a poor country after just gaining their own independence, after having their resources siphoned off by Britain for hundreds of years. So, you know, it must have been really sucky. The situation in Tibet deteriorated beyond comprehension, becoming host to some of the world's worst human rights violations. 1.2 million Tibetans were killed in the occupation. Now, I'm not sure how much of that was from starvation, disease, physical genocide, forced abortions, torture, but I'm sure there is some pie chart from hell out there that can put a number to these things. Again, with the secret of governments, it's hard to tell what the truth is, and the world may never know the extent of the damage. And the young Dalai Lama was front and center to all of this, bearing witness to the incomprehensible potential for anger, greed, and ignorance in the human mind to wreak havoc on the world. The amount of stories that he must have heard from all those who escaped and the families of those who did not escape, I imagine would be incapacitating for a person not trained in superhuman compassion and mental stability. I get super depressed just scrolling down the first few pages of World Star Hip Hop. His Holiness really pleaded with his people to remain nonviolent and not retaliate against the Chinese as it would make the situation much worse, but there were instances of skirmishes in, uh, here and there. And on March 10, 1959, there was the Tibetan uprising in Lhasa, in which 15,000 Tibetans were gunned down in a matter of days. Later that year, the Chinese announced the full annexation of Tibet. And ever since, His Holiness has made it a duty to speak to the world about the unimaginable tragedy that Tibet has suffered, and to be a voice to the world for the people that suffer in silence. The Tibetan constitution was drafted in 1963 and called the Charter for Tibetans in Exile. His Holiness spoke to the United Nations about the crisis and passed an international resolution for Tibetan freedom that China completely ignored. The Chinese dammed great rivers of Tibet, began enormous mineral mining operations, built power plants and prisons, clear-cut forests, and apportioned huge swaths of land for commercial crop, essentially using Tibetan slave labor to conduct most of these undertakings. 
all of this occurred during China's great leap forward that uh, caused the starvation of hundreds of thousands of Tibetans and tens of millions of Chinese. Chairman Mao was not a genius. Let's just put it at that. Despite all of this, for the sake of the rest of the world, the Dalai Lama expanded his studies and spent some time in retreat at this juncture to deepen his realization and put his doctrinal learning to the test and know for himself the depths of the experiential dharma. He received extensive teachings on the Kala Chakra Tantra, one of, if not the most, complex and advanced forms of tantric practice, and most dear to His Holiness's heart, the transmission of the way of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhicharyavatara, by Shantideva from the great Sanskrit scholar and fellow refugee Kunulama Rinpoche. In 1960, the Tibetans were granted the region of Dharamsala in India to establish the Tibetan government in exile. Since the uprising, on March 10th every year, His Holiness gives an address to the Tibetan people and the world, expressing what the country has been suffering, but also words of encouragement for people to remain nonviolent, optimistic, and proud of their resolve and Tibetan heritage. On March 10th, 1971, he gave the following address. In spite of the fact that we Tibetans have to oppose communist China, I can never bring myself to hate her people. I believe that Tibet will be free only when its people become strong, and hatred is no strength. It is weakness. Lord Buddha was not being religious in the particular sense of the term when he said hatred does not cease by hatred. Rather, he was being practical. Any achievement attained through hatred can be neither lasting nor binding. It would only be inviting trouble sooner or later. And as for my people, at this critical period, hatred would just be an extra mental burden. Moreover, how can we hate a race who do not know what they are doing? How can we hate the millions of Chinese whose minds are regulated by their leaders? And how can we hate those leaders who in the past have been so persecuted and have suffered so much for their nation and for what they believe is right? I do not believe in hatred, but I do believe, as I always have, that truth and justice will triumph. In 1967, he traveled to Thailand, his first time to another country besides India, and has since visited 67 countries to spread the Buddha's message of peace. He met with several popes, excluding the current, is consistently invited by world leaders, spiritual communities, health organizations, scientists, universities, the list goes on and on every single year. Due to ties with China, the U.S. denied His Holiness a travel visa until Jimmy Carter, but finally in 1979 he received a huge reception in the U.S., both as a world leader, speaking about the crisis in Tibet, but also calling for worldwide nonviolence and environmental responsibility, and also representing Tibetan Buddhism, and helping the other great masters of Tibet plant roots of goodness in an increasingly dangerous, unstable, depressed, and suffering world. What is most amazing to me as an American and someone who lives in the modern world is how much we take all of this modernity for granted. We think it's so normal to be on computers and Skype chats with Istanbul, watching movies on planes, at shopping at grocery stores online, and all the crazy things that humanity came up with that we really just started doing. When for hundreds of thousands of years, humans have been pretty much the same. Just basic analog life of farming, crafts, literature, maybe some theater. Basically just being at home with the family. And for 2,500 years, the Dharma has spread around the world, making people's thinking a little more sophisticated, but essentially presiding over very little technological and economic change in the civilizations that it flourished in. 
especially in Tibet. And only within the last hundred years have we begun this planetary-wide science experiment of seeing what happens when you release godlike technology on a mentally immature species. Now, Buddhism, which is an ancient art, which predates Rome, it's older than woodblock printing. Actually, the first ever mass-produced woodblock print uh, came from China and was of the Diamond Sutra, is being presented in almost exactly the same form as was compiled by the Arhats, per the Buddha's recommendation in the First Council after the Buddha's death. And the consistency of this form throughout the ages, despite its wide dissemination, is striking. So here we have this meeting of the jewel of the ancient world with this crazy post-Vietnam War United States global superpower, and the Dharma is being transplanted on this new continent for the very first time by the absolute legends of last century. I'm talking Trungpa, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, Kongchul Rinpoche, Suzuki Roshi, 16th Karmapa, Trinli Norbu, Jigme Punsok, Maizumi Roshi, Hai Dung, Ajahn Chah, Keshri Damananda, Ananda Maitreya, and the 14th Dalai Lama were all walking the earth at the same time and all helped the U.S. to turn our civilization towards the Dharma to help us, of course, but also to hopefully mitigate the disastrous threat that our culture of dominance and consumption posed to the world. Absolutely, the world takes its cue from the U.S., and our greed and aggression have put the survival of the human species in question. We are the berserk elephant in the marketplace that needs to be tamed. So just as the Dharma was brought to China by the likes of Kumara Jiva and Bodhidharma, and it took hundreds of years for it to fully take root, right now we are witnessing the coalescence of the culturally isolated, globally apathetic, self-contained society of America with the worldwide multicultural phenomenon of Buddhadharma. The teachings of selflessness, other centricity, non-attachment, transcendental visionary metaphysics that are completely antithetical to the way we do business around here. Now, the fact that we call our actual lives our business is pretty telling. Just like thermodynamics, when a civilization is unbalanced with yang energy, the Dharma finds its way in and cools the atmosphere through a change in the hearts and minds of the people, and society shifts towards becoming gentle and meditative, compassionate and non-militaristic. And I think we can already see that beginning to happen. It happened most successfully in Tibet, but in India, China, and Japan, it was the same pattern. The great saints came in to teach, and Buddhism served as a societal pressure release valve to demonstrate a harmonious, fair, and blissful way of existing. So we are less than a hundred years into this process, and if you are a Buddhist, or even vaguely spiritual, you're playing a part in this continental historical shift towards conscious, compassionate evolution. And perhaps there is no greater influence in this shift than His Holiness the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has attended dozens of international peace conferences, imploring world leaders to stop sucking the planet dry and blowing each other up. He regularly speaks about gun violence, ecological degradation, depression, pollution, healthy minds, the need for education, the need for refugee assistance, religious harmony. He always makes the point that all of the problems we face are completely man-made problems. Every year he attends interreligious conferences and ceremonies to stress the oneness of our humanity and that we're all brothers and sisters. And every year he holds the Mind and Life Conference to meet with leading world scientists 
to not just prove Buddhist practices to be effective, but to draw together the brightest minds to tackle the problems of education and emotional intelligence, mental health and compassionate studies, the biological evidence that we are truly interdependent with each other and our environment, and of course to inject a little non-dogmatic wisdom of Madhyamaka to help decipher the intersubjective and quantum data sets that scientists are still coming to grips with. His adorable relationship with Bishop Desmond Tutu would melt the heart of a clansman. He has given dozens of collegiate commencement speeches, talks with children, students, business leaders, governments, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, Christians, just everybody, every day, he's giving a speech. If you go to YouTube to the Wisdom Publications page, look for the Jamyang Rinchen interview in two parts, where he talks about his time that he spent with the Dalai Lama as his principal Chinese translator. He tells the story of this relentless, constantly studying, always concerned with others, fully engaged human being that really walks the walk. In the interview, you hear about his schedule that's just otherworldly. It's incomprehensible. Uh, another great interview is with Tubton Jinpa on the Wisdom Podcast and about his time with His Holiness. In fact, the Tibetan people begged the Dalai Lama to take a break from his schedule at least once a year on his birthday. And even on that day, he still gives a speech to thousands of people. And of course, most famously in the Buddhist world is His Holiness's Kala Chakra ceremonies, of which he's done 34 times, where he gives a public demonstration of one of the highest teachings in the Buddhist arsenal a vision of the human mind as a time machine where we draw the future of Earth as a completely harmonious Buddha land ever closer. His Holiness has continued to be open to negotiations with the People's Republic of China in hopes of a not separate but autonomous Tibet, like Taiwan and Hong Kong, one in which they can revive the ecosystem of the Tibetan plateau and rekindle Tibetan culture in its homeland. In 1987, he delivered the five-point peace plan for Tibet in Washington, D.C., and as a response, the Chinese did a public execution in Lhasa, where they forced thousands of people to watch two people get shot in the head, which ensued a riot where even more people were gunned down. In 1988, he delivered the Strasbourg proposal in France to further cooperation with the Chinese government, but was answered with another crackdown in Tibet where martial law was declared. The Tiananmen Square Massacre happened in 1989, and in the same year, His Holiness received the Nobel Prize for Peace for his commitment to pacifism and being a guide to all of humanity to stand up to belligerence with dignity and restraint. Throughout the Cold War, he met with Russian and U.S. leaders to help them see the silliness of their arms race. He corresponded with newly freed Nelson Mandela to help end apartheid in South Africa, in 1993, he was invited to speak at the UN World Conference on Human Rights, but Austria kowtowed to China and revoked their invitation at the last minute, and he ended up giving his speech in the parking lot. In 1995, the UN formally recognized the right to self-determination for the Tibetan people, and China responded with aggravated violence and suppression while enacting plans to increase the Chinese population in Tibet. That year, His Holiness went to Mongolia in a trip to revive the Dharma and gave teachings to a crowd of 50,000 people. In 1999, he greeted the, the young 17th Karmapa who escaped to India. In 2001, the Tibetan people voted for the first Prime Minister, Samdong Rinpoche. In 2007, he received the U.S. Congressional Medal of Honor, 
But the situation in Tibet became increasingly tense, with many revolts occurring amid an increased global scrutiny of the atrocities. Thanks to the internet, what happens in Tibet has become global knowledge. The self-immolations, the protests, the squalor, the surveillance state, the brainwashing. It's all horrifying, and it's all online to see right now. If we could just get our own political and social situation together here in the West and move away from reckless consumption, we could actually be in a position to give economic and moral incentive to the Chinese government to stop mutilating the Tibetan and Chinese people, as well as their own homeland. But as it stands, we may be the greatest contributing factor to the endless devastation in Tibet. It's partly our own imperialism and consumption and crony capitalism that cause China to compete with our craziness. They feel the need to enact their own manifest destiny, and Tibet is just collateral damage in the race for dominance that we all take part in. So come on, guys. Let's get it together. Over the years, His Holiness met with dozens of prime ministers and presidents, but also people from every aspect of human life, whether secular or religious, and he continues to be the voice of reason. The Dalai Lama has established, with the help of Robert and Nana Thurman, the Tibet House Organization, whose sole goal is to preserve the educational and medicinal systems, language, and traditional art and culture of the Tibetan people, providing average people with an opportunity to learn and benefit from this magnificent treasure of the ancient world. His Holiness gives transmissions of the great Indian sage Shantideva's literary masterpiece, the Bodhicharya Vitara, which is central to all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. He expounds on the most basic Four Noble Truths to the most advanced highest yoga tantras with precision and experiential prowess in multiple languages. It's actually pretty humorous listening to his translators try to keep up. He continues the 13th dedication to cherishing the Rime movement and the unification of the schools of Tibetan Buddhism because the great masters of these schools all realized that infighting and sectarianism pose the greatest threat to Tibetan culture and Buddhism. Because if these schools of highly advanced Buddhist practitioners with so few differences can't even get along, then what chance does the rest of the world have? He every year visits holy sites of all the world's religions and does so, I think, truly humbly. He shows in all of his interactions that he considers everyone that he meets to be his teacher, to always be open to reason and to new perspectives, and to be ready to receive teachings even from a small child. He's articulated his three life commitments that he wishes to accomplish in this lifetime. The first, bringing the whole world into the mandala of compassion for the survival of the species by ending war, individual and corporate responsibility, and the mind sciences. Two, to bring inner science and rigorous study of the mind, not just the brain, into the mainstream university curriculum, as well as a greater emphasis on universal ethics. And third, bringing the message of Tibetan nonviolence to every culture that has been marred by bloodshed, and to restore the environment of Tibet to its former glory. And with all of this, he never slacks on his own personal commitments to Dharma practice, an example to all Dharma practitioners and students of all religions. He wakes up at 3 a.m. every day and does his Dharma practice for three hours, and then engages with Dharma study and his social duties, does more prayers, doesn't eat after lunch, keeping his Vinaya commitments, has tea at 5 p.m., and then does more prayers and practices before an early bedtime so that he can wake up early again to personally contribute to the stability of the planet. If the Dalai Lama didn't do what he does, 
Where else on earth would we find such an example of human excellence? It is said in Buddhism that the two most fortunate circumstances in life are that of a king and that of a bhikshu or monastic. And there is only one person on earth that is both of those things, a monk king, and that's His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His Holiness is the leader of leaders. If you look around the world right now, there is no other world leader that has been here as long as him, who has seen as many presidents, politicians, prime ministers, and dictators come and go, rise and fall. So his panoramic view on the dynamics of geopolitics is unmatched, which means that for future generations of both leaders and regular human beings, we should hang on to his every word and take his advice on how we conduct ourselves as indispensable. His Holiness has a grand vision for Tibet when it is returned to its people, that the Tibetan people will be able to go back to their land and restore their culture and serve as a beacon to the world of spirituality, intelligence, health, wisdom, and compassion, enhanced by modern innovation, but with a reinvigorated respect for the land and nature. I would say that that's a goal we can all get behind manifesting. When the Dalai Lama is regarded as the Buddha of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, he laughs it off with a wave of his hand and says, No, I'm just a simple monk, which is exactly what a great bodhisattva would do. But when you look at the circumstances of his birth, his responsibilities, his erudition, his constant dedication, his love for all beings, his humor, his charm, his wit, his patience, his electrifying and yet pacifying presence, his humility, his openness, his equanimity, his grace, his holiness, if he's not the Buddha of compassion, he sure in the hell acts like it, which shows that enlightenment is possible even if you're not a descended Buddha. I mean, just the shakti that, or the spiritual energy that comes off of this guy is enormous. You know how the Buddhas are always depicted with this multicolored circle around them? That's called the Buddha's bindu, or for more woo-woo terminology, it's their aura. And this aura precedes the being like, a, like super loud speakers on a car. If you can hear them before you see them, well, that's the gigantic aura surrounding his holiness, which must be hundreds of miles in diameter. Because when he comes to a place, the whole environment shifts. The people become nicer. There's a heightened anticipation. Little spiritual coincidences start occurring. The whole atmosphere becomes electrified and thousands of people flock to come see him to just sit in this aura of compassion. I'd say that lots of people have this kind of Shakti aura, like famous musicians, actors, or whatever. But the presence of the Dalai Lama is something else. Something magnificent to the highest degree of that word. It's something you have to experience. One of the epithets for Buddha Shakyamuni was Mahashasta, which means great teacher, because only through education is one freed from suffering. And today, right now, we are living with one of the greatest teachers of all. So if you have a chance to go see his golden face, don't pass it up. If you want to know the Dharma and progress on the path, go look at his YouTube. It's all there. If you want to change your life forever towards the good, get one of his books on Amazon or at any library. And if you want his miraculous activity to continue, for life on earth to get better and better, think of his smile and wish that he sticks around with us a little bit longer. Namo Guan Shirin Pusa, Om Mani Padme Hum, 
praise to Chenrezig himself, His Holiness, Jampel, Nanwa, Lobson, Yeshe, Tenzin Jatso, the 14th Dalai Lama. I'm going to finish this podcast by reading a praise from Jamyang Kense Choki Lodro, one of the greatest lamas of the 19th century and Rime master. This is the long life prayer. Om Shvasti. The vast love and primordial wisdom of the Buddhas are all embodied in Lokeshvara, white like a dazzling snow mountain, sublime and holy lord of the world, you who are his emanation, a guru for each and every being in the three realms, may you be victorious, wondrous and without equal in the three worlds, omniscient and as unique as the Udambara flower, great crown jewel for the teachings in all beings on earth, supreme victorious one, holder of the lotus, I pray for your long life. Always and forever enlightened, yet in this age of conflict, you gather living beings within your embrace. You resolve in your commitment unshakable like a Vajra. Great Lord of the Tenth Bhumi, I pray for your long life. All the realizations of the stages of the path to enlightenment are merged as one within your secret body, speech, and mind. Your qualities of knowledge and love inconceivable. Second Buddha of the North, I pray for your long life. Of teaching, debate, and composition, your mastery is unimpaired. In you, the eight great treasures of brilliance have opened wide. With specific, perfect understanding, you teach the Dharma. You who are victorious in every direction, I pray for your long life. Through your explanation, accomplishment, and activity, you spread the enlightened Tsongkhapa's precious teachings in a hundred directions, annihilating the deluded arguments of malicious opponents. Fearless lion of speech, Manjushri, I pray for your long life. On the secret mantra's gradual path of the triple vision and triple tantra, as the four mandalas are absorbed through the profound yogas of the four empowerments, you realize directly the wisdom of the four kayas. All-pervading Lord Vajradhara, I pray for your long life. Mahamudra is the natural state of all things, profound emptiness and clarity indivisible. With the sunlight of its innate wisdom, you dispel the darkness of samsara and nirvana. Great Lord of Yogins, Milarepa, I pray for your long life. From the treasury of all the mysteries of the ocean of tantras, you make the exquisite water of the four rivers that mature and liberate, flow into the fields of fortunate disciples. Vajrapani, Lord of Secrets, I pray for your long life. Everything in samsara and nirvana occurs as the play of interdependence, arising yet primordially unborn, a state of utter peace. Wise teacher of this profound Madhyamaka that is free from all conceptual elaborations, Lord of Nagas, Nagarjuna, I pray for your long life. Kulika Pundarika, skilled and perfect exponent of the Kala Chakra, with its inseparable outer inner and alternative cycles, has appeared in the land of Tibet in the form of a spiritual friend. You who are in essence the original Buddha Kala Chakra, I pray for your long life. All phenomenon of samsara and nirvana are the expanse of the sphere of luminosity, unfluctuating, spontaneously great perfection. In self-liberation beyond all action, you attain the kingdom of fruition. Primordial Lord Samantabhadra, I pray for your long life. Fearless and without mixing or confusing them, you steer onwards the great chariot of all of the Buddhist teachings. Sole refuge for the teachings and for all beings. Lord Tenzin Gyatso, I pray for your long life. A hundred times with reverence and awe, the jeweled heads of the mighty ones of the three worlds bow to the auspicious wheel of your lotus feet. Great sovereign of the Dharma, I pray for your long life. As the Lord of the gods, annihilating the demonic forces of the Asuras, with a hundred-pointed Vajra of power, energy, and strength, destroying the rocky mountains of wrong and perverted views, fearsome Sri Heruka, I pray for your long life. 
as long as this earth, Mount Meru, the sun and moon endure, may you remain secure, invincible, on your Vajra throne. In the celestial mansion of Potala, Avalokiteshvara's delight, your secret body, speech, and mind forever changeless. Through the grace of the three supreme deities of long life and the power of the truth of masters, Yidams, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas, may all that we have prayed for be blessed and so accomplished without any obstacles. Thank you.